I tell people I just get excited to get out of bed in the morning now as I was, you know, when we first started 43 years ago. This is The Day That Changed Everything, a podcast series produced by Maine Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we will post an interview with a Maine business leader whose life or business was upended in one day and learned how they navigated their way back. If all great changes are preceded by chaos, then this podcast series seeks to help us make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank, Maine Technology Institute, or MTI, and Sutherland Weston. You've worked, you saved, and now it's time to enjoy what you've earned, your retirement. This is Kurt Garasha of Norway Savings Asset Management Group. We're more than just retirement advisors. We're family fiduciaries, promising to put you and your family's interest and goals first. Let us help you write your next chapter. For more information, visit norwaysavings.bank. Investment products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank and may lose value. Hello, and welcome to the day that changed everything. My name is Will Hall from Maine Biz. Today, we're talking with Sean Moody, the founder of Moody's Collision Centers, the largest independent collision repair business in the Northeast. Sean launched the company in 1977, when it's hard to believe he was just a senior at Gorham High School. Today, Moody's Collision Centers operates 13 branches throughout Maine, from York to Ellsworth to Bangor, and has a team of about 240 employees. Back in the 1980s, the companies acquired a business in used car parts and eventually transformed it into one of the country's leading recyclers of automobile components. In 2001, after attracting bids from the likes of Ford Motor Company, Sean sold that part of his business, and he began wondering what to do with the windfall from the sale. His response, inspired by a day that changed everything, was to create a structure that turned over ownership of the remaining business to his employees. Sean, first of all, welcome to the day that changed everything. It's good to have you with us today. That's my pleasure, Will. Well, we're, we're glad to have you, and I'm eager to talk to you. And, um, you know, I mentioned a little bit about your company and how it began and what brought you to the creation of this employee stock ownership structure. But I think we'd rather hear you tell us that story. So <laughs> maybe you could start at the beginning and sort of take us through what happened and what brought you to that, that aha moment, that day that changed everything. Well, I love the title of your program, Will. <laughs> uh, and I actually do have that moment. We'll get to that. We had been in the body shop business, started that young, as you said, and had owned and operated several different businesses around that. We had the the junkyard come up for sale that abutted our body shop in Gorham, and it was a junkyard. It probably could have qualified for a Superfund site. It was <laughs> what you would imagine a junkyard to be, white goods sure. and tires and just 20 acres of debris field. So we bought it as more of kind of didn't want anyone to put a housing development next to us type of thing and expand. And we started cleaning it up, you know, being a body man and being in the business here, a stickler for detail and organization. And I just, I just got, really fell in love with recycling. I was always been the type of person that was very frugal, you know, I could try to make something out of nothing. And in this industry was just uh, right, kind of becoming on the cutting edge. We signed on to a software system of yard management uh, program. It was the first one in the country in the mid nineties. So it took us about four or five years to to clean the property, to reorganize it and try to transform a transition into the late model 
salvage, become a true auto recycler instead of a junkyard. Mm -hmm. And as we built that business, we attracted national attention because of our innovation and operating practices. We received the highest coveted award from the Automotive Recyclers Association back in 96 called the Gold Seal Award. Wow. And that was given to six recyclers in the whole country for operational and, and environmental excellence. So we really had a good thing going. It was a multi-million dollar business it grew into and attracted the likes, as you stated, Will, Ford Motor Company and a startup, which was, was their goal was to create a roll-up for your listeners, a roll-up meaning to try to, to acquire enough businesses, like businesses across the country to create a national network and then take it as an IPO to Wall Street. So that's what they did, definition of a roll-up. We looked at both models and decided to go with LKQ, even though obviously the risk was higher, but I had a lot of peers across the country that had already been acquired. They were really good operators, second, third generation family-owned businesses. So it gave me a level of comfort. So we took a third of the deal in stock, which is pretty incredible, thinking of growing up on Narragansett Street in Gorham and, and having built a business that actually became a publicly held company and is traded on the market today. It's got a net worth or a market value of over $8 billion. So oh, it's wow. Remarkable, wow. remarkable story. And, and, and could you tell us, I mean, just to give some idea of the, the scale of that, that deal, like, any, anything about the terms or, you know, the dollars involved, well, anything like that? I'll, I will tell you something to be interesting for the folks out there. You know, us main is, okay, picture me. Here I am. I was no different than a sweatshirt and jeans guy, hands dirty, doing a hands-on guy. Sure. Um, after we were acquired, we had the highest EBITDA of, I think at the time they had 23 yards across the country, the highest EBITDA operating performance of mm -hmm. any location they had ever acquired. Oh, wow. So that wow. immediately kind of gained us, you know, some status amongst yeah. our peers, you know. So some of the deals, the terms, they had, you know, mezzanine type EBITDA performance you could get paid out and all these other things. Not to glaze everyone's eyes though, but basically we took a third of the deal in stock at the IPO offering. And it was interesting, a year and a half or two years into it, the market wasn't favorable and there were problems. See, a lot of us were just like me, kind of owner operators, built the business up. We didn't have audited financials. And if you're going to take a company public, there's a time period, I know it's 12 to 18 months, you have to have all of your business units have audited financials. You know, the SEC regulates that. So this postponed the IPO. Some people got a little nervous and there was an opportunity to buy more stock because some people were nervous because it was delayed or is this ever going to happen? You know, get sure. nervous Nellies. So we bought more stock sure. <laughs> at, that, at that discounted price. And when it came out, it went from $13 to 40, it split, went to 40, it split. So that was, again, you take risks, calculated risks, and it ended up obviously paying off. But more importantly than the finance side was the business acumen. Think about me going to Birmingham, Alabama, for example, showing up there uh, seven o'clock on a Monday morning. I, you know, here I am from corporate, and I'd go in, and the first thing I'd do, Will, is I'd go right to the loading docks. I wouldn't go and talk to management. Help them load the truck, go to dismantling, talk to the people doing the work, and mm -hmm. find out, okay, how's it going around here, you know? And that's where you get your real read operationally, mm -hmm. how that location was performing, you know, the morale, how the people were treated, was the owner still engaged, all of these things. So that really helped me and gave me, I think, the confidence 
say, okay, as we grow Moody's, okay, that was our own company, that gave me a lot of confidence to see how they were doing their networks and things, learning from that and applying it to, to our own industry. Sure. And the, the, the part of Moody's that was left, the repair business, how much of that was left? Uh, how many employees did you have in that operation compared to the parts recycling business? That's a, that's a great question is Moody's body shop back then only had about 10 or 12 coworkers. One shop right here in the hometown of Gorham. I'm here now. That's why I'm saying right here. And when we started to go to the second location, this brings us to the, the moment that changed everything. I was at Spiller's Repro Graphics in Scarborough picking up a set of plans. We we're going through the approval process in Scarborough for a second location on Pleasant Hill Road. And I'm numbing around the lobby waiting for them to, to come out. And I see on the wall, Will, there was a photograph of a company called Sebago Technics. Okay, and Walt Stinson and Ellen Stinson were the founders of Sebago Technics, whom I knew all but not well. And it said employee-owned company. And these are the things that were going through my mind then. It's like, you know, we sold Gorm Auto Parts, it was called, and that worked out. But the people that helped build that business, there was about 20 coworkers when, you know, we sold LKQ. They had a good job and they had an incredible future. You hear the story of the company, but they didn't really get the, the financial windfall that, you know, we experienced. That bothered me. I was only 40, you know, I probably could have just done nothing, I guess, but I was motivated to grow Moody's and I thought, you know, this might be what we're looking for so we can have co-ownership. So as we grow Moody's, hopefully we're successful in that endeavor, then everybody will share in the equity and the success of Moody's, not just the gratification, but the financial success. Mm -hmm. So I contacted Ellen and Walt and we started that, you know, that journey to an employee-owned company. So it sounds like it was kind of a, an aha moment. It was, uh, no question. Uh, just this kind of chance encounter with the way another company was, was dealing with ownership kind of sparked some curiosity in your mind. Absolutely. I think that other companies with a young population, the way that young adults think today, like, hey, what's in it for me? They, they want to belong to an organization that not only is gratifying to them personally, but also something that they are part of, they have a voice in. So Moody's culture is one of the important things I think for your folks to, to think about. A companies that we maybe consider going with an employee-owned model is the culture that Moody's had established prior to becoming the ESOP really was the foundation. We had open book management. So once a quarter at every location, we look at our revenue, our profitability, our KPIs, Everything is out in the open. And we started that well before the ESOP. We give 10% of our after-tax profit back to our coworkers in the form of profit sharing. So they have a direct financial impact on how we operate, how they, what they do makes a difference on a, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's great to hear about this. And it's, it's, it's clear that, you know, this, this was like something brand new for, for your business, but you, you were really excited about the potential and, and we're looking ahead even back then. It's like anything, we had high hopes, but we did an incredible amount of due diligence, Will. I don't, I don't want anyone to come away from this podcast thinking, I want to start an ESOP tomorrow. It took us about 12 to 18 months to finally make the decision to create the plan. You know, it's regulated by the Department of Labor and ERISA. It's sure. a real retirement plan. It's not something that Moody's homegrown. It's 
it's a it's regulated by ERISA, the Employee Retirement Insurance and Securities Act. Sure. So it's uh, it's serious, and it should be. You know, it's yeah. people's retirement at stake, and so there's a lot of accountability. Yeah. Well, it's 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 a big deal. Um. So we're going to take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, it would be good to talk a little more about sort of how you got things going, and you know, now that you had had this revelation, uh, how did you? sort of put it into action. Hang on and we'll be back in just a moment. Remember why you went into business? You can say to fulfill a dream or change the world, but I'll bet the real reason you went into business was to make money. So how are you doing? And would you like to do better? Sutherland Weston Marketing Communications has been helping main businesses better do what they were built to do, make money by reaching audiences, catching eyes and ears, and helping them make the sale. Worth a phone call? Find Sutherland Weston Marketing Communications online at SutherlandWeston.com. The ESOC is a great model for young people because it allows them to participate in the day-to-day operations, but actually impact themselves and their future. Welcome back to The Day That Changed Everything. Again, we're talking with Sean Moody, the founder of Moody's Collision Centers. And Sean, before the break, you were telling us about how your business, which you had successfully grown, spun off uh, part of the operation, and you know we're now kind of trying to figure out what to do. You had had this this kind of revelation about turning over some of the ownership to your team members, but now you had the difficult task of actually making that happen. What did you do? How did you get things going? Well, we. You know, we're very, we're students of anything that we do. We do a lot of homework, due diligence. And I'm the type of person I want to talk to people that have done it. You know, what would you do different? Uh, What did you do that you like? And you're glad you did. So we were able to go to a CEO conference of just ESOC companies. One of the things that we did in Rhode Island and get around a group of of CEO companies, ESOC companies in New England and ask them those things. You know, what, what should we look at? What are some of the you know, the hurdles that we got to overcome, the costs associated with it, the complexity associated with it in terms of record keeping and things. And it really boiled down to like most things in life is, like you said, well, getting, creating a good team. So there's three major components to an ESOP administration and implementation is a good legal team. You know, we need somebody that understands ESOP law that can create the plan document, help you guide you through that. There's some things that are customizable within parameters by the Department of Labor, and every every company may do it a little different. And another one is a TPA, a third-party administrator, which is basically a record keeper, very important, you know, in staying in compliance with these regulations. And a third one is an evaluation firm. So we have to have our company valued. We actually we don't have to, but we have chosen to uh, every year by an independent third-party company which mm-hmm. we use Atlantic Management down in New Hampshire. So they come in and uh, establish what is the stock value? What is the value of the company? And that determines the share price. So those are the three groups, you know, the three professional people that you need to help guide you, not only through the implementation phase of the ESOP, but the ongoing uh, continuation and compliance. So this is this is not something that you can undertake on a whim, that, that you have to really uh, understand the process and work at it diligently to make it happen. Yeah. And you know what's interesting, Will? I think it's probably a lot like life. You know, the, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. 
that that's <laughs> the same thing with the ESOP. You know, you, you get into it and then there's these things that kick in, like when we got over the 100 coworker threshold, then we had to have our plan audited on an annual basis. And so you, you're constantly finding out things that you need to, you know, that you need to be addressed and uh, be in, stay on top of. But your team helps you with that. So it's not, I, you know, we did it, you can do it. I just would, would say that be careful and how. Another thing I think was a little unique in other companies that we've helped, we've helped guide has been gratifying like Walt and Ellen did for us. Talk with companies like Wright Ryan, for example, uh, Landry French. You know, these are companies that have become ESOP, employee-owned, well-established, very uh, successful companies. And I think that the, the thing that I come away from, and, and I let people know this, is the culture. When people come to talk to me, I say, look, if you're looking at an exit strategy and a way to kind of cash out, sell the business to your coworkers, and then go to the Bermudas or whatever, but, you know, I'm not your guy to talk to. <laughs> really, you know, you, you've got to believe in the whole concept of employee ownership, which means open book management. You got to, if you want them to think like owners, you got to treat them like owners and you got to, you got to have their best interests at heart, I think, for it to really be a successful transition. So we gifted, basically gifted the stock to begin with to our coworkers to get it off the ground. I think the first year I put in like 5% or 7%. And in doing that, I get a tax deduction because it was a pension contribution. No, no different than putting money in a 401k. Mm-hmm. You know, I was putting it in the coworkers accounts. So we get the tax deduction for that. And then mm-hmm. as we get up to, I think it was around seven or eight, 10%. Then we did what's called a leverage transaction where we actually, I actually sold stock to the trust and as that stock was distributed to the participants, then they became uh, larger shareholders. And now mm-hmm. I'm proud to say just this last year, our coworker owners are now majority coworker owners at 54%. So we've been wow. working on this for 20 years, building that ownership up. And wow. you know, I couldn't be prouder of uh, our folks. They work hard. I'll, I'll just, your listeners, I'll just tell you this. Our stock since 2003 has increased in value an average of 18% a year. That's incredible. That's 18% great. a year over the last 17 years. So you do the math on the return. We've got coworkers with six figure balances in their retirement and it's, you know, it's, it's sweat equity. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, and th- that's through some, uh, some good years and some lean years, I imagine some ups and downs. And may lean, thank God. But you know, we've had a lot of good ones. And, and again, it's that, it's that power of, our coworkers are so dedicated. It's hard to describe it. It really is. I mean, they really believe in themselves and not letting each other down. You know, mm-hmm. what can we do to improve? Mm-hmm. Uh, we buy the latest equipment and have the latest technology. We've been really fortunate. That's great. Um, what is the, the, the current value of the, uh, of, of the employee's stock, uh, would you say? I believe I, I'm going to have to think here for a second. I know the stock price just came out a few months ago. I want to say it's around $14 million. Wow. Wow. Tremendous. How have employees reacted? Uh, What's been your sense about the way that they embraced this new structure and and have have reacted to it and uh, and participated? You know, as much as I'm glowing about the ESOP, the reality is when we first introduced it, as again, I, I gifted the stock to begin with. Because I, I didn't want to oversell it. Again, I'm talking about 20 years ago. I didn't want to oversell it. We made it clear, look, this is a retirement benefit. 
You can't borrow money on it. You can't, you're probably not going to like me at all. Okay. In the beginning, but when you go to retire, you're going to be excited. you got a good chunk there. So it's, it's really a retirement mechanism. It's not as great as you might think from a recruiting standpoint, because you know, it's kind of a, what's in it for me. You know, I get to live week to week. I'm, I can't touch that. Once a, a coworker is established and they're vested and they have some tenure, you know, five to 10 year coworker, that cohort, then it starts to become powerful because our see, think about this, our seasoned coworkers, our tenured coworkers have a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience are anxious to mentor and coach the younger coworkers because they know that the coworkers product productivity and retention is going to bolster their, the company's value and uh, in turn their retirement. So that, that gets woven together over a period of years, that culture and that, deep understanding of what you do does really make a difference. Sure. You know, the, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. Yes, yes. And, and how do you feel now that, you know, 20 years later, uh, the ESOP has gotten to the point where it is and there are so many employees on board? When, I, when we announced the, the majority ownership, I was a little nervous because I said they, they're considering letting me go. So I don't know. <laughs> Other than that, we're doing great. I feel great about it. <laughs> <laughs> we got a great crew. It's it's nice they're uh, they, they seem to be keeping you around for now. Huh? <laughs> well, I guess we'll see what happens. No, I'm excited. I, you know, I tell people I just get excited to get out of bed in the morning now as I was. You know, when we first started 43 years ago, 43 years doing this. You know, a lot of this activity we're fortunate. And well, this is kind of um, breaking news, but we bought the old Bangor Hydro, which is. Amara now Versant Power compound in Bangor and Main Street. It's like a five acre campus with three buildings. And we're going to put in a truck sandblasting, collision repair, and, and repair center up there. And we're working on that right now in Bangor. Well, th- this, is, this is really fascinating, Sean. I mean, it's clear you had a, a powerful idea to start with. And there were some things that you had to sort of put in place and had to do your homework. But the, the ESOP really seems to have succeeded and things are going well. We're going to take one more quick break. And when we come back, it would be good to talk a little bit about what you've learned from this process and what might be useful as takeaways for our listeners. So again, we'll be uh, right back. Mainers have an unrivaled work ethic, an endless supply of ideas, a boundless energy to create, and the perseverance to not say it's done until it's done better than it was before. Which is why the Maine Technology Institute was created to support, nurture, and invest in those qualities, and make Maine a place where ideas and people can thrive. To see how MTI supports innovation, go to maintechnology.org. That's maintechnology.org. I was motivated to grow Moody's and I thought, you know, this might be what we're looking for so we can have co-ownership. So as we grow Moody's, hopefully we're successful in that endeavor, then everybody will share in the equity and the success of Moody's, not just the gratification, but the financial success. We're back. Again, my name is Will Hall and I'm here with Sean Moody, founder of Moody's Collision Centers, talking about the day that changed everything. So, Sean, we were discussing the, the sort of evolution of your company, the changes it went through, uh, some incredible success, and then the way you kind of had the insight to really kind of upend the kind of uh, traditional ownership of, of a company like yours and move to an employee stock ownership plan. 
looking back at the way the business has grown, about the way the uh, the ESOP has evolved, what do you think business owners should take away? What do you think the lessons you learned that might be useful for for other business leaders? Well, I, I'm glad you, you know, bringing this forward, Well, because it's important, you know, whenever I watch something, you know, I kind of want to bring something away from it. The ESOP model, again, is, I think, is, is like 21st century. You know, when you take young people, what's the most difficult thing that most business owners or nonprofits or any organization, what's the biggest challenge is recruiting and retaining good people, you know, to, to help the organization thrive and grow. So what do you do to attract people? You know, what do you got to offer them in terms of benefits, pay, and, and things like that? The ESOP is a, is a great model for young people because it allows them to participate in the day-to-day operations, but actually impact themselves and their future. So, you know, when, when you want folks to, to stay and build on that institutional trust and tenure that you have with your established coworkers. So I would say... You're probably looking at initial costs to implement an ESOP. You can do it a variety of different ways. Some people go 100%, you know, and some people go a portion of that ownership over time as we did. But it's a significant investment. I would say a coworker-owned company is probably 20 coworkers on the small side, on the marginal, whether it's cost-effective to do that and up. And I would like to say that there's over 50, ranging from Johnny Seeds, uh, Dennis Paper, uh, Revision Energy, you know, Phil Coop over there is a great company, Systems Engineering. So they cover all sectors uh, of industry and, and, um, and business. I would encourage people that are considering, let's face it, I'm, you know, I'm getting of age. Do you have an exit strategy? Do you have an exit plan? A lot of people don't. A lot of people get to my, my age and wake up one morning and go, what am I going to do? You know, I, my, my kids aren't interested or whatever. What am I going to do with this great company that, that I built? Uh, together with our coworkers. So I really strongly encourage you to look at the ESOP model as a sustainable way to create that legacy business. So I, I would just encourage business owners out there. It's a tough environment, obviously with COVID, but look beyond that. You know, how can you give back to your coworkers that are working hard every day, that have been with you, that have been loyal, but also it provides an exit strategy for you when you get the cash, when you sell the stock. So to sure. me, it's a win-win. And uh, there's a lot of good models to look at currently in Maine. You can go to the Maine ESOP Association that was founded by Mark Adams of Sebago Technics, myself, my daughter, Danielle. You know, he's had some folks his company help out. We meet, go to that website. You can reach out to Mark or I. Tell him I said it was okay. Just <laughs> listen up to Mark. No, we love ESOPs and we love talking about them, as you can tell. And, and it's, to me, it's, it's going to be the wave of the future. Well, it's it's clear you have a you have a real passion for for the ESOP model, and at the same time, you know it is not something to be undertaken lightly. Um, I mean, are there any sort of cautions, warnings, you know, red flags that you'd want to let folks know about? I can remember like it was yesterday. Uh, Maria Prada was the HR person for Rexcut Industries out of Massachusetts. Put on a presentation. She said the worst day of her life. She had to let sixty people go. And now these are, this is an ESOP company, employee-owned company. But what I came away from that with, and she started crying, it was very emotional. And we we're all there. We we're all just nodded right up. And what she said, though, was her coworkers went right down the expense line saying, we don't want breaks. We don't want coffee and donuts. We're going to cut everything back that we can possibly cut back. 
is that any jobs that we can save by reducing overhead and frivolous things, whatever they had before, she said it was gut-wrenching, but it was heartwarming because mm -hmm. coworkers were so engaged in the ownership model that they knew there was no, the company had to do what they had to do to sustain itself. Wow. So again, when, when things were really down at the bottom, the ESOP culture still rolls to the top. Well, that's that's good to hear, and it's it's a it's a good point that when times are tough, you you're sharing that responsibility with a lot of other invested owners, people who really are looking to do the right thing and and looking for what the best outcome is for the company and for their their teammates. Exactly right. Well, you know, it runs deep, and again, it takes years to build. It doesn't happen overnight. Don't try to oversell it. Let it kind of build on itself. You know, the more you can share for information with your coworkers, it creates that foundation. Before you implement the ESOP, you have one a good, strong culture to begin with, to build on top of. And then there's a lot of great main companies have that. And as you were saying, there's a, a whole community of them, of, of ESOP companies out there that businesses here can learn from. Right. I mean, Chinbro, Sargent Corporation, I mean, there's, there's an extraordinary, if you look on our website and look at the geographic makeup of ESOP companies all over the state, all over, you know, the sectors of industry across the state, it's, it's, it's inspiring. It really is. There's a common denominator they have of the success they're having. They, they've got the right culture and people are there to create their own future. Wow. Well, it's, it's, it's exciting to think about that and hopefully will be of interest to, uh, to our listeners. And if they are looking for more information, they should go to the, the main uh, yeah, association. Main website. association yeah. Well, Sean, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's, it's exciting to think about what your company has done, what other companies are doing to invest the, their employees in the business and ultimately make a better business for, for everyone, it sounds. Thank you for talking with us. And Thank you to all our listeners listeners for listening today. Again, for Main Biz, this has been Sean Moody from Moody's Collision Centers, and my name is Will Hall. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Main Biz. Find out more about this podcast and other Main Biz media products at mainbiz.biz. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank, Maine Technology Institute, or MTI, and Sutherland Weston. The Main Biz podcast team includes Renee Cordes, Will Hall, Maureen Milliken, Allison Nason, Andrea Tetzlaff, and Donna Broussard. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedenka. Logo and marketing designer is Matt Selva. The Main Biz podcast team also thanks Peter Van Allen, Betsy Vanderplug, Ken Hansen for their contributions. Subscribe to the Main Biz podcast at mainbiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Copyright 2020.